Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. We're in FIRE's Philadelphia headquarters and uh, sitting to my left, who I will do my, my best to Give all due respect is my boss, Robert Shidley. He's the executive director here at FIRE. Across from him is Samantha Harris, who is the vice president of procedural advocacy here at FIRE. And then we also, of course, have Will Creeley, who's senior vice president of legal and public advocacy. All right, should we just jump right in? Last week, Babson College decided it was going to fire a professor after conducting a very lengthy one-day investigation (laughs) into a Facebook post that he just shared with his friends after the whole Iran controversy came up. Uh, Backstory, President Trump tweeted out that Iran better be careful, essentially, and that we had them in our crosshairs, including their cultural targets, which resulted in a backlash from the chattering classes, of course, uh, but also sparked some satire. And a lecturer over at Babson College, Ashin Fonzi, tweeted out, not, no, he didn't even tweet out. Well, this was a Facebook post, right, Will? Yeah, it's a Facebook post, and yeah, it's a Facebook post. Yeah, it's a Facebook post, and he said, in retaliation, Ayatollah Khomeini should tweet a list of 52 sites of beloved American cultural heritage that he would bomb. Um, Mall of America, question mark? Kardashian residence, question mark? I don't know, I read that as satire, of course, commentary on America's consumerist celebrity culture. Some people took offense resulted in a news site of some sort, a hybrid blog, news website, and tabloid uh, that called attention to his Facebook post. I should note that his Facebook post was just sent to his friends. It's not, it wasn't a public one. Uh, but the typical backlash that we see happen when faculty often engage in uh, extramural speech. There was one tweet that said, why does Babson College have an American-hating terrorist supporter on their payroll? Ask them and then of course, Babson's phone number. Uh, Babson released a statement the following morning that said that Babson College condemns any type of threatening words and or actions condoning violence and or hate. And then they continue to say, we have immediately suspended him with pay pending the completion of our investigation. And I believe it was the next day he was fired. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've seen this before. I, I remember when I first started at FIRE, it was what, Professor Guth? Yep. Uh, well, that was Kansas? Yep. Tweeting about the NRA? Yep finding himself in trouble. What did you think, Will, when you first heard about this? Well, a couple of things. I just, back to your original characterization, I just, just for the record, as I recall, it wasn't just the quote-unquote chattering class that, that voiced concern about President's threat uh, to the 52 Iranian cultural sites. It was also, if I'm not mistaken, Secretary of Defense. Yeah, I shouldn't say chat. When I mentioned yeah, class, I, talking heads on TV. Right. I, I, I want to just put that it was, it was also a question of whether or not it would constitute a war crime. So, mm-hmm. matter of public concern, <laughs> no question about it. You got the president saying something. Anything the president says is a matter of public concern, and that's beyond just this president. That's all presidents. Second of all, anything the Secretary of Defense says that might be a crosshairs or across uh, purposes with the president or, or contradict the president or, or even confirm the president is also equally a matter of public concern. I mean, the fact is... This is what everybody in the country was talking about and thinking about. And when everybody in the country is talking and thinking about something, 
that means other people will be making jokes about it. And that's, you know, part of the great thing about living in this country. No matter how serious it is, you can have somebody making a joke. In fact, the more serious, sometimes the more funny. Wait, so you're saying you don't think that the Kardashian residence is <laughs> a, a beloved American cultural heritage site? I, I am offended by that. <laughs> I don't, listen, <laughs> I actually kind of like the idea. If you were uh, the old, you know, uh, joke in, in philosophy or sociology, if you were uh, 3,000 years in the future and you're telling your contemporary peers about what defined American society, I think you could do worse than the Mall of America <laughs> and the Kardashian residence. Certainly you're gonna have hours of footage of the latter. So, you know, he, he tells a joke. If, if uh, somebody tells this joke on late night comedy, you know, maybe it lands, maybe it doesn't, but it's an obvious joke. He tees it up, he lets it go, and it costs him his job. I mean, I, I feel terribly for Professor Fancy because uh, I think that you have to engage in pretty willful misreading uh, to, to consider this as some kind of real threat. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Babson reported to the FBI and yeah, they uh, said the we police. are cooperating with local, state, and federal authorities. They describe, they don't describe it as threatening words. They just say we condemn any type of threatening words. I'm assuming that's if, what if, the, if, well, if it has need, to be either threatening words and or actions condoning violence and or hate. I mm -hmm. mean, right. that's, you know. If you're the FBI and you get this phone call, what kind of day are you having? Like, oh, <laughs> professor posted Kardashian residence. We'll be right on it. Scramble the fleet. Let's go. You know, I mean, I just... This, this one just I, depresses me because at the end of the day, professor is fired. Uh, bad faith, willful misreading, and selective offense wins the day. Babson covers itself in dishonor. All of us are dumber as a result of this. I, I'm, I feel terribly for Professor Fancy, and I feel very badly about what it says about uh, the uh, political climate of our country and the climate for freedom of speech. It's, uh, it's depressing and embarrassing and Babson should be ashamed of itself. One well, of the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one thing that is a common thread running through a lot of these cases, I know, you know, we're going to be talking later on about a, another case at UConn, some students suing university. One thing that is a common thread is that you, you often have people making private jokes. I mean, how many, we had a case at Syracuse that involved video from a satirical fraternity roast that someone else disseminated and only when someone who disagrees with the message chooses to disseminate it beyond the private audience for which it was initially intended does it ultimately result in consequences for the person so he you know we we see increasingly you know in addition to cases where somebody truly does speak out publicly which is still their right to do uh, instances where somebody's trying to tell a joke to their friends or among their friends and one person uh, decides to publicize that with the intention of getting that person in trouble, and it works. Yeah. I think another thing that we see so often is the disingenuous statement that they're going to be conducting some kind of investigation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about this. I'm, I'm, I have real trouble trying to figure out particularly what you would investigate in this statement. He says, Ayatollah Khomeini should. He doesn't say, I'm going to help the Ayatollah. He doesn't say, I've got a line with the Ayatollah. He says, Ayatollah Khomeini should tweet a list of 52 sites. So what precisely, I would love to hear the mechanism by which that investigation <laughs> took place. What are they investigating? This is one of the, you know, very early on in FIRE's uh, existence, we had the president. I know where you're going. I like yeah, that. That was, that's what yeah. I was about to say, of Alaska too. saying, uh, Mark Hamilton? Yeah, uh, he was on the saying podcast. There's nothing to investigate uh, when... You know, the professor was investigated for a poem she wrote yeah, it was for a about poem. A child abuse in native Alaskan communities That's or right. something like that. 
And yeah, he said, you know, when the only when we're all we're talking about is speech, there's nothing to investigate. Yeah, what, what does the investigation look like as a practical man? You, you press print, you print out the, the Facebook post, you look at it real close. And you're like, well, <laughs> well looks offensive to Looks me. like he's made suggestions right. here, boys. I think, like, I think the investigation is probably... Book him, Dano. Yeah, exactly. And the, the sad thing about it is the investigation is probably... Instead of looking at the speech itself, it's looking at the reaction to the speech. Exactly. Right. That, that's, that's the thing. Real investigation. The investigation many, is what can we get away with? Right. How, how, what, yeah. how many likes do the critics have? How many retweets does Turtle Boy News have? That's the real question. Right. And I think sadly, oftentimes, and it's part of the reason for Fire's existence, the calculus in a lot of these administrators' minds is, okay, who's going to give us more trouble? Mm -hmm. The professor who we fire for saying something protected or all the, you know, the mob that's unappeased if right. we, uh, you know, stand up for free speech. And I think too often universities decide it's better to appease the mob, that their their chances of, of, you know, staying out of the spotlight are better if they appease the mob. Yep. And one of FIRE's, you know, sort of raison d'etre is that, you know, we want to change that calculus. But unfortunately, some administrators still... A sad commentary is that the fact that they said they were investigating means they're not actually the worst. I mean, sometimes they don't even pretend to do an investigation. They just can you for what you say. Right, at least they pretended. Right? Yeah, right. I, yeah. I, I will say, to Sam's excellent point about changing the calculus, if you're listening to this, <laughs> and if you think that people in the United States of America should be able to make jokes without it costing them their job on their private Facebook page, take a second, go over to, what is it, babson.edu, find the president's address, find some decision maker's address, and write him a letter. Yeah. And you can tell them that Will Creeley of Fire said, What's going on at your school? I just thought I would ask, do, do you promise free speech or do you not? Do you promise free speech until it offends people who are allowed on the internet? Because if that's the promise, you don't promise free speech. You should be honest about it. And one thing I want to tack on here is, you know, what they say here is we've immediately suspended him with pay pending the completion of our investigation. So one possible outcome here, it's one we've seen before, is that the university, if they're getting enough pressure from, from groups like FIRE and other free speech supporters, they're going to say, well... We completed our investigation, and there's nothing to see here. And wouldn't you look at that? The process works. I'm pretty sure they right? fired him. And that's no, oh, they did. They did. They just, did yeah. Oh, yeah. I, okay. Yeah, yeah, he's fired. Um, but you know, even in cases where they have the investigation and they say, "Look, the process worked." You know, he's we found we exonerated him after an investigation. We've seen that in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yep. The investigation itself, you know, the the punishment is the process, and being even being dragged through an investigation is going to. Uh, chill other people from speaking out. So even if they had not fired him, um, you know, just the fact of the investigation itself alone was a violation of his rights. Yep. That's yeah, and that's why we need more President Mark Hamilton to send a one-page letter to all their departments, I think is what he did, or all the campuses, because he was the president of the University of Alaska si system, and said when protected speech is at issue, there is nothing to investigate. And an interesting historical note here, was that back in 2016, when President Trump had just been elected on that night, right. I believe, there was a group of conservative students from Babson who drove through neighboring Wellesley College. Oh, yeah, I remember uh, that. Hillary Clinton's alma mater, am I remembering yes. that correctly? Right. Yes, yep. and we're cheering, being rambunctious, celebrating. Uh, and the university, if I'm not mistaken, investigated their speech They did, well. and we wrote but, about it. And we wrote about it. And they ended up backing down. But in this case, unfortunately, they didn't back down. And unfortunately, in this case, uh, Mr. Fanzi isn't a tenured professor, which would trigger you know, some procedural protections. He was fired those, the next day. Those students were eventually found not responsible on December 19, 2016. But it took a letter to fi from FIRE uh, and, uh, 
and pressure and to change that calculus. And again, I just want to remind folks, if you're feeling aggrieved, <laughs> it's Office of the President, all one word, at Babson, B-A-B-S-O-N dot E-D-U. Write a letter now, tell them to fire sent you, and ask them to account for the glaring discrepancy between their promises and their practices, because I don't think they're going to give you a good answer. And Professor Fanzi will be the first one to tell you that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's definitely fair play if people are writing and calling in to fire this professor. For others, of course, who support this professor's right to free speech, That's to right. write in and say that the university should have their back. You got it. All right, let's move on to the other item that's in the news. This is at uh, the University of Connecticut, and this has captured headlines both in, in the Northeast but also across the country that involved two University of Connecticut students who were arrested uh, what was that a couple months ago? It might have been November uh, for using racial slurs in the process of playing uh, the penis game, which is a game essentially where you keep yelling penis. Uh, you say it louder. It's and like louder. a game of chicken. Like yeah. it, it, it involves one or more people, sort of, and it starts at a very low volume and, and it gradually escalates until somebody finally balks at, at saying it as loud as they would have to say it, in which case they yeah. lose. Yeah, but they diverted away from just using the word penis to also using racial epithet, and this was caught on camera. This was late night. Um, it was caught on camera, and the video eventually made its way into the hands of the university administration, which then used, looped in the police department. And the police department eventually charged these two students with a um, violating a law that bans ridicule and advertising. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. This is what the statute reads, that yeah. they were charged with. Uh, bans ridicule on account of creed, religion, color, denomination, nationality, or race. Any person who, by his advertisement, ridicules or holds up to contempt any person or class of persons on account of the creed, religion, color, denomination, nationality, or race of such person or class of persons shall be guilty of a class D misdemeanor. This is, I guess, a 1917 statute. I really wish the lawsuit was challenging the constitutionality of this statute, too. Yeah. To be clear, Nico, that first sentence you read, I think, is just the title of the section. I think oh, it's is describing it? what it is. So the, the operative part is any person boot by his advertisement, et cetera. Et cetera. Ridicules or holds yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Content. I mean, this yes. is a classic speech code. Sam. Right. You spend a lot of time reviewing speech codes on campus. This is one that's uh, Connecticut law. Well, and I should note that this Class D misdemeanor did actually warrant an actual, apparently, investigation that took 11 days and involved driver's licenses, university surveillance cameras, Wi-Fi data, and card swipe data. So, I mean, this was dragnet. This was, you know, yeah. you're looking for the one-armed man. So this isn't yeah. just free speech. This is like a surveillance state, yeah. essentially, bringing all of its resources to bear to find people who uh, engaged in uh, some, you know, offensive... And I would know, why do you think it was so hard to find those people? It's because when they were playing this, this wasn't actually, this epithet, the N-word, wasn't actually aimed at anybody. It was part of this game that they were playing. So it would have been easy to identify them if they had been in some sort of argument or actually calling somebody else that. But that wasn't the story. There was nobody that this they were just, aiming this at. This is so just shouting clear, words into... Yeah. The air no. as loud as you can. To be clear, this, this wasn't an attempt to, you know, attack another person by using this word. Right, and it's really, interesting because yeah. a lot of the news reporting has sort of downplayed that's that right. fact. 
Right. You know, and you just keep reading sort of so students you get the accused of shouting racial slurs. This was, yeah. yeah. But then when you read that they were playing the penis game, I mean, that just really underscores sort of the fact that this was not targeted. This wasn't an altercation um, of some right. kind. Which is a yeah. crucial detail, right? Because yeah. if you think about the, the standard for discriminatory harassment in Title VI cases, right, you're talking about the conduct that's so severe, pervasive, objectively offensive that it denies a student target. Uh, access to an educational opportunity or benefit. So it, it's, it is plausible to imagine if two students are running after a student yelling racial slurs at that student and chasing him out of, a, say, a cafeteria or a, a dorm room. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're talking about something that, that's actually... Where we're getting there. Right, yeah, yeah right. You're, you're getting... You're getting uh, Even uh, under the, I would like to make point out, mostly dead fighting words right, doctrine, right, where right, this right. probably would be the one word that might still qualify, sure. would have to be aimed at somebody. Right. There's nobody there. Right. You know. Yeah, and I don't know, this, this, this one uh, is going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, there's a, uh, not beyond just the 1917 point, there's also the uh, interesting uh, note, and I shudder to think that anything from 1990 is now historical, but it is historical. There's that was the year I was born. Right. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm old enough to remember 1990. Me too. Ah, yeah, me too. Me too. Cue, cue the uh, black and white footage here of me wearing short pants and playing Wonder, a stickball. Wonder Years song. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Peak of my awkward adolescence. Mm -hmm. Was it short pants? That was like the grunge era when you wore, wanted to wear baggy pants. Right? Uh, I'm talking yeah, about my suspenders. A little later. That okay. was more like 92. 92. Three, gotcha. cost a nickel and for 10 cents you could fly on a hot air balloon. I don't know. It's an old timey. Uh, anyway, so back in 1990, uh, a federal district court uh, entertained a lawsuit found by Nina Wu, uh, junior at the University of Connecticut, who had held up a, uh, put up a handmade poster on her dorm room door. Uh, Still year dangerous prior, today, right? And it listed uh, the types of people who were welcome, tolerated, unwelcome, and shot on sight. Uh, the last category included uh, quote bimbos, quote preppies, quote racists, and some students say quote homos. And she was expelled from all residential and dining halls uh, because they found the words on there to be uh, violative of the university's uh, anti-harassment rule. Uh, By the way, w one amusing fact about this is that while the investigation and the you know the disciplinary action were taken on the basis of the the anti-gay slur, mm -hmm. the complaint was apparently actually brought by two women who felt that the word bimbos was directed mm -hmm. at them. That's right. So she was uh, expelled from housing and dining halls. Uh, and filed a federal lawsuit. And to resolve the lawsuit, University of Connecticut entered into uh, a consent decree, a permanent injunction banning it from enforcing, quote, any policy with, that interferes with the exercise of First Amendment rights by any student when the exercise of such rights is unaccompanied by violence or the imminent threat of violence. Now that describes to a, a T the, uh, the conduct here, uh, however offensive to many or most. And the ACLU of Connecticut uh, if I'm recalling correctly, was instrumental in securing that, uh, mm -hmm. that consent decree. Uh, so the, uh, the lawyer uh, filing suit here and representing uh, the student uh, has pointed this fact out, and it'll be very interesting to see, and we'll have more has updates. Has the ACLU of Connecticut weighed in on this latest case, or not yet? They did a while back, and then David Cole chimed in as well and said, this is, you know, while perhaps offensive, this is protected speech, classic protected speech. Yeah. So we, we shall see uh, how this one goes uh, with that echo from 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. to be clear, this, uh, if we didn't say it, this lawsuit is challenging the university's continued attempts to boot them out of the dorm. They're actually not challenging this statute, right? I well, so, okay, so, earlier, so this, this, this Class D misdemeanor yeah. statute, one of the students has accepted a diversionary plea agreement. The other student, I think, is still fighting it. But 
both of the students are suing uh, for being found responsible right. for violating the school's disruptive right. behavior and policy and the, the move by the university to remove them from all campus housing. So that's the, what the, who the lawsuit is aimed at. It's aimed at the university. Uh, it's not aimed at the Connecticut statute, although I agree, I, it would be nice if that was challenged as well, and what, maybe yeah, the one student who's still fighting. Court, at least and, as applied. And to be clear, this uh, I, I know I keep saying to be clear. No, uh, but let's be clear. You know, <laughs> the, you're right. Uh, the statute applies to advertising. I mean, well, by it's, his it's advertisement. Well, I mean, I think by we, his. We I don't know if that's not weird 1917 speak, but I don't believe it was. I believe it actually had to do. I, I, I believe we looked into this, and I'm sure people who listen to the podcast can write an angry letter if I'm wrong or they disagree. But we looked into it. it, and it actually did have to do with. A fa it was basically trying to clamp down on advertisements that were insulting people. Advertising. So yeah, yeah. I think of um, Peter Tosh. Legalize it. Legalize it, and I will advertise. Related to it. Daniel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, the yeah the advertising right are you advertising in commercial speech or are you advertising by virtue of endorsement um, either way though I don't way. think I think it would uh, be one last point before we leave this one Nico if yeah. I may yeah uh, this past week uh, the digital rights organization fight for the future and our good friends over at Students for Sensible Drug Policy see that I did a Peter Tosh segue into SSDP uh, they launched a campaign uh, raising alarm. Uh, about the increased use of facial recognition software uh, in campus security systems. And it's an interesting and worthy project. We may have more to say about that in the future. Uh, but folks are interested in uh, the creeping surveillance state on campus uh, and what that will do to American uh, expectations of privacy. If you go to, you know, in the same way that we're concerned, if you go to school in a place where you don't have full uh, expressive rights, uh, if you go to school in a place where you don't have uh, privacy rights and if you're constantly subjected to facial recognition software, uh, what that does to normalize the use of that software in larger society, uh, check out the SSDP uh, and Fight for the Future uh, campaign that just launched. So a question, maybe this is best directed to you, Will, about this lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So can the university just claim that, well, First of all, this is the, the University of Police Department that initiated the investigation based on the statute that's still technically a good law in the state of Connecticut and apparently has been a, a used and abused by Connecticut police. And they can just say, well, it's, a, it's our policy that if you violate the law on campus, then... Because the lawsuit is pending, I'm going to reserve comment. <laughs> gotcha. Well, we'll see, what we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, but yeah, that, that looks like a ridicule. How do, how do you define ridicule? Oh, yeah. Holding contempt of a person or class of persons seems like a classic speech code that we see on campuses all the time. Uh, again, keeping things light, we're talking about Iran, we're talking about the use of racial epithets. Get a cup of coffee. Uh, let's move now on to anti-Semitism. Last month, on December 11th, we received an executive order, or the nation received an executive order from the Trump administration called Combating Anti-Semitism, which sought to um, best way to describe it is to quote it. it says discrimination against Jews may give rise to a title six violation when the discrimination is based on an individual's race color or national origin it shall be the policy of the executive branch to enforce title six against prohibited forms of discrimination rooted in anti-semitism as vigorously as against all other forms of discrimination prohibited by title six and one of the ways it tries to determine what is anti-Semitism is through the use of this International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism and the associated examples. Now, the definition of anti-Semitism is this. 
Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. And then it provides some examples of how anti-Semitism might uh, manifest itself, including making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations against Jews as such, or the power of Jews as collective, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, uh, applying doubled standards by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any democratic nation, it in that case, of course, state of Israel. Um, another one is drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Now this might, of course, loop in protected speech, regardless of what you think of the speech. Um, critical uh, criticisms of Israel, um, the Israel's right to exist, comparing um, what's going on between Israel and Palestine to something that's happening with the Nazis. Uh, protected speech, perhaps, I want to loop the experts in now. The executive order itself says, in considering the materials described in the subsections of this section, agencies shall not diminish or infringe upon any right protected under federal law or under the First Amendment. Does that save them? No. No, you can't just staple a copy of the First Amendment on a speech code uh, and say, hey, you know, but, but don't get us wrong, First Amendment, right? If it was that easy, uh, you know, we'd have a, a hell of a tough road here at fire uh, if all you had to do was put hashtag First Amendment on your, your unconstitutional policy. No, that, that doesn't get them out of the woods. Uh, we know uh, from both hard-won experience here and from uh, what courts have told us that savings clauses like that uh, don't rescue uh, a statute's uh, uh, constitutionality. Uh, there's a great opinion from um, uh, Magistrate Judge Wayne Brazil uh, yep. in the College mm -hmm. Republicans versus San Francisco State University case from some years ago, which is a great case if you have five minutes and yeah. you're interested, check it out on our website. Uh, but uh, in addition to making a lot of other excellent points, uh, Magistrate Judge Brazil points out that students are not First Amendment scholars. Mm -hmm. uh, and you cannot presume or uh, posit a expansive knowledge of a First Amendment precedent uh, to students, uh, those covered by the law, or those uh, enforcing uh, the terms of the executive order. So in other words, you can say that this doesn't include First Amendment protected speech, but if everything preceding that savings clause contemplates protected speech or, or significant portions of it do, uh, the uh, contradiction there in terms uh, will be reasonably interpreted by those seeking to comply by it or enforce it uh, to preclude that kind of speech in the first place. So the effect is the same. Well, in that case is actually, you know, interesting to bring up in connection with this issue because it really it sort of illustrates right. how um, you know, when we get into restricting protected speech or trying to judge whether something is permissible or not based on the viewpoint of the speaker, you know, the case at San Francisco State, which was many years ago now, was I think 2006 or 2007, but that was, uh, you know, members of the college Republicans who were brought up on disciplinary charges after they held an anti-terrorism rally where they stomped on a paper replica they had made of the Hezbollah flag. Mm -hmm. um, and because... Uh, the, the name Hezbollah in Arabic contains the word, the name of God, you know, the word God in Arabic. Um, people found it insulting that they would step on this and they were brought up on charges of incivility and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, one of the points that we have been trying to make with regard to this executive order, because, you know, I think that, 
you know, listen, and I mean, I'm coming from a perspective. I'm Jewish. Uh, my children attend a Jewish school where there's an armed guard. We go to synagogue with an armed guard every week. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, Jews are very concerned about anti-Semitism right now and often feel like, you know, at least on some campuses, their concerns are taken less seriously than perhaps, you know, similar concerns expressed by other groups. And one thing we've really been trying to illustrate is that, you know, the answer is not giving the government the power to determine what speech and is, is and is not permissible. And, you know, to sort of illustrate it, you just have to put the shoe on the other foot. I mean, if, if President Trump can issue an executive order that says it's anti-Semitic and possible evidence of harassment to, you know, deny Israel's right to exist as a state, then a hypothetical, say, President Sanders could issue an executive order saying that it's evidence of Islamophobia to deny Palestinian the right to Palestinian statehood. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. So, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of sort of short sightedness here, you know, in an effort, I think, to address something that's really got people scared. But that's when it's when people are scared that these things happen, that that the government clamps down on protected speech. And so, you know, the fact that there is this this climate where, you know, we've been seeing incidents of actual violence and threats against Jews, you know, it, it means we need to be all the more vigilant not to compromise our fundamental rights. Uh, as we try to address this. Yeah, there was a real missed opportunity here too, which is that the, the first part of the executive order is actually uh, something that neither fire nor just about anybody else uh, we can find out there uh, really has an objection to, which was making it clear that for purposes of, for purposes of Title VI that Jewishness, being Jewish, would be considered um, a, a, sub, a, a subdivision of race, basically an ethnicity. Right, right national origin or ethnic Exactly, because Title VI, for, for historical reasons, doesn't include religion. Um, in fact, religion is only unlawful to discriminate against um, on the federal level um, in terms of educational admissions. Um, it, it actually doesn't apply to the, the normal harassment, uh, the laws, Title VI and Title IX. Um, Just for clarification, yeah. Title VI is is violated when there is discrimination on the basis of race, race color, color or and national origin. origin, not religion, right? And then Title IX, it has to do with uh, discrimination on the basis of sex. And, and Title VI, to be clear, for all non-lawyers, those who don't work in this industry, applies to the institution itself. But it's also responsible for ensuring that its charges or its students, its faculty right, don't... It's, it's right. similar it's, to Title IX, which yeah. is a prohibition on sex discrimination in that it requires institutions that receive federal funds not to engage in discrimination on the basis of, with Title IX, it's sex, with Title VI, it's race, national origin. Um, but peer harassment uh, that creates a sufficiently hostile environment under either Title IX or Title VI can give rise to institutional liability if the institution is, is, allows it to go on and is what we call deliberately indifferent to it. Knows about it. Right. And so the, the sort of historical, and this is more recent historical problem that it had, that had originally grown up was that because Judaism is both a religion and an ethnicity, um, it, was, it was a little bit too easy, um, in many people's opinion, for the government to decide that uh, it didn't need to um, consider it for Title VI purposes because they could say, oh, well, you're being discriminated against because you're uh, of Jewish religion and not ethnicity. However, there's been a bipartisan consensus since, uh, the, two th since the, uh, the second Bush administration, George W. Bush administration is when this uh, began. And then it was, I think, um, 
issued, I think, in a what, a 2010 letter uh, by the Obama administration that the Department of Education would consider Judaism to be an ethnicity for purposes of fitting it into Title VI. Um, so the executive order could have said, actually, now it's the you know, it's not just the Department of Education and it's not just sort of a, a statement of what we're going to do, but this is now actually has the force more or less of law to say this is how the government is going to consider this and sort of make that more permanent. And that was actually what the first one or two paragraphs of the executive order did, where it really ran aground was deciding to add on what we think was really very unnecessarily uh, this definition of anti-Semitism, which um, you know, as specific as it is, was most certainly going to be controversial. Although it's hard to think of a definition, other, you know, a definition that wouldn't be very, very general, that wouldn't be controversial in some way and impinge on protected speech. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't think that the Department of Education could try to define any of the isms without, uh, you know, getting into protected speech. No, I don't which think is they why, have before either. No, they right? haven't. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, it's, you know, what they need to be looking at is what is the conduct mm -hmm. and is the conduct rising to the level of, uh, you know, severe and pervasive and objectively offensive harassment, not what does the person engaged in the conduct think about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah. Yeah, one, one point I think we, it behooves us to make that we, we've uh, talked about internally is that uh, in 2013, uh, under the uh, Obama administration, FIRE raised the alarm about uh, a vast, uh, <laughs> broad, unfettered def definition of sexual harassment uh, that the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Education uh, announced as a blueprint for campus uh, uh, enforcement of Title IX uh, that really included uh, a great deal of protected speech, almost a limitless amount of protected speech on its face, um, unwanted conduct, including verbal conduct of a sexual uh, nature. Of a sexual nature, and fire raised the alarm then. And we did so in <laughs> somewhat lonely circumstances. You know, I have First Amendment advocates, civil liberties advocates got it, uh, but uh, because the uh, push to uh, address sexual misconduct on campus is popular, and I think obviously well-intentioned, just as this measure, I think, is... is uh, uh, popular and well-intentioned. Well, yeah. yeah. well, I mean, it was yeah. dropped the day after so, the Jersey City shooting. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's at those moments, as Sam alluded to before, when it's most important for civil liberties advocates to stand up and say, wait a second. Think about all the speech that you are hereby declaring permissible for punishment. And uh, the, the point we've made here is that it would behoove folks in uh, university administrations to stand up and say, I get what you're trying to do. Here's why you can't do it that way. Uh, you know, I understand the problem you're addressing. I see it too. Here's why throwing the First Amendment out when you're doing it is a bad idea. And uh, consistency in that regard is something that FIRE absolutely prides itself on. Uh, and we are happy to stand with universities uh, both then, now, and in the future uh, that want to make that stand as well. So this isn't the first time we've seen this definition come up. This, so you all might know the background better than I would. We're talking about the IHRA definition here, but it's also the definition used by the State Which Department. Which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. <clears throat> so the State Department adopted an earlier version of this um, basically by posting it on their website that was, I think, by the European Working Group, group right. on anti-Semitism or on Holocaust denial or it's something like that. It's a European Monitoring Center on Racism and Xenophobia. Thank yeah, you. and so it has gone through several iterations. This is, this, this is, this the, is, just this is the, the most recent 2016 version, and it actually has more examples than the version that FIRE saw and others saw 
um, and even that its advocates, I think, started to advocate for back when you know the, the first push to adopt it was on, uh, which I think is itself very telling in that it's not like this is some timeless, inarguable definition of anti-Semitism. It's changed within the last few years. Right. Um, since 2005 when it was first Yeah, drafted. since 2005 and maybe had more than one iteration. It was also uh, designed in the European context for identifying um, anti-Semitism abroad. I think I know what you're going to say, you but know bring it up. Say. Yeah, exactly. The lead author of the mm-hmm. definition, Kenneth Stern, uh, has testified in Congress and written uh, an eloquent op-ed uh, for the New York Times explaining that uh, the purpose of the definition was to identify a concept, not to uh, determine which speech should be prescribed mm-hmm. on yeah. college campuses. And he's been a vocal opponent of the push over the past uh, four or five years to incorporate this definition into campus speech regulation. Uh, and so uh, I think that is telling in and of itself. Yeah, and we have, we have a blog post about this in which we have a couple blog posts about the efforts to get this definition incorporated into yeah. law, including the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, which seems to come up every, every Congress. Kenneth Stern wrote a very popular New York Times op-ed pushing back against it on the points that you were just making, Will. And just, just this week, uh, South Dakota's governor passed an executive order uh, doing much the same as the president's executive order. Uh, it's passed into state law in uh, both South Carolina uh, and uh, New York. It's been considered in a host of other states, including uh, New Jersey, uh, just across the river from Philadelphia, where we sit today. So this is an old effort. Uh, we've been writing about it and, uh, and pointing out the First Amendment flaws since 2015. If folks want more on this, I urge you to check out uh, uh, eminent uh, First Amendment scholar, Professor Eugene Volokh, uh, writing in his blog, The Volokh Conspiracy at Reason.com. Uh, he's got a, uh, an in-depth look at the First Amendment problems here. And uh, as Sam alluded to before, he uh, explains how setting a precedent for uh, including protected speech uh, in, in these definitions would be a problem uh, under possible future administrations. Uh, you can't censor your way uh, to uh, tolerance and understanding. I think that's the kind of bottom no, line. No, and here. again, the, the evolving... You can't? De- you can't really? do it. <laughs> and, you know, it's the evolving definition is such a good example of that because they didn't, you know, they felt the need to add more. I mean, that need is always going to be felt. I mean, that's... We've managed to get through since the Civil <laughs> Rights Movement without definitions of racism or sexism. Um, and I'd like to think that Americans are capable of defining those and, and identifying those, I should say, you know, without having to, you know, write it down in a way that's either going to be right. under-inclusive right. or over-inclusive. And, and, and context know? and facts are determined yeah. here. There's one example from the news, and I, I will let us leave this subject. Uh, I think it was at Cutstown University in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. It just, yeah. just a couple, just this month. So here we are, you know, over the past, what, since December 11th, talking about anti-Semitism, the president's executive order, and, and suggesting, as fire has, and will continue to do, that Title VI uh, be amended to ex- uh, specifically include religion. The step Robert was talking about in the first half of the executive order, we'd like to see that done by statute. That's right. Uh, but there, there's a, a, a lawsuit against Cutstown filed by a Jewish student who says, uh, who alleges that uh, her roommate and her roommate's boyfriend subjected her to uh, really ugly uh, anti-Semitic harassment. They uh, uh, smashed things in her room. Uh, they, they called her names. They sent her awful anti-Semitic uh, text messages, that kind of thing. And the facts are really uh, pretty harrowing. Uh, and then they refused to serve her food at the cafeteria. And so I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, 
This is anti-Semitic discriminatory harassment of the type that should be prohibited by federal anti-discrimination law, just in the same way that if you had done that on the basis of uh, other protected class status, you would have crossed. Uh, and you don't uh, need other. to look into the perpetrator's views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right. to know that it's anti-Semitic. That's right. That's right. You exactly. Don't, you it, don't. it is a it is a real thing that happens. Right. You know, we shouldn't we don't lose sight of that, but it's also not necessary to get into these heavily loaded definitions for that. And you know, you do see that sometimes and it's, it's identifiable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's it, so, okay. So I wanna move from Title VI now to Title IX. And we're expecting all new- All the titles. Yeah, Actually, all the no, titles. we're not talking about Title VII. Yeah. Title X, I think it's <laughs> Title X. Yeah, Title X. We're expecting new regulations come to come from the Department of Education in the coming weeks. We don't know exactly when. Uh, don't, don't remind me. It makes me feel like I should check my email. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll be on Twitter right now. I think someone would run into the room. I think Probably, someone would yes. happen. Yeah, I think okay. that's one of the things that you interrupt the recording. We don't have the red light outside that says don't bother us, but uh, oh, even if we did, I think that would justify mm -hmm. it. In any case, Title IX, this is something that we've been talking about for many years, often People only think of it in the context of due process. Uh, and some of the ways in 2011 under the Obama administration that the Department of Title IX said you needed to eliminate if, if a school held certain due process protections, some of these protections in order to make the process more equitable to accusers um, in sexual misconduct cases. Right, Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, right? Office for Civil Rights, yeah, the Department of Education. Anyway, we're seeing this new department work to bring in more due process protections. We're also seeing them, this is a free speech podcast, potentially they might include a definition of harassment that is more speech protective than what we saw in the past decade or so. And this is, this is what's called the Davis Standard. Robert, you wrote blog posts on FIRE's website, uh, I think in December, about yeah. why this Davis Standard is the right standard so that discriminatory harassment is not allowed mm -hmm. on college campuses and, and schools can get in trouble when it, it does occur with deliberate indifference, um, but also it protects speech. Uh, and this definition comes from a January 12, 1999 uh, Supreme Court decision written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which said that school boards are liable when officials are deliberately indifferent to sexual harassment of which they have actual knowledge that harassment is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it can be said to deprive the victims of access to the educational opportunities or benefits provided by the school. Why aren't schools already abiding by the Supreme Court definition of harassment? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all is the, the fact that the Department of Education itself, um, since I believe, since at least 2001 and maybe 1999, um, has been promulgating a definition of sexual harassment that reads differently, but which they said has should be read to be in accord with the Davis standard, um, where they use a severe or pervasive uh, standard. Um, they don't necessarily have the um, the fact that the victim has to be effectively denied an education. And so that confusion is entered in. And then it would also be wrong to overlook the fact that this uh, this issue is, is very heavily political. And there's a lot of people who feel like um, the standard should be 
uh, much lower. The, the, the beginning of sexual harassment, uh, where it goes from annoying to actually being harassment, uh, should be a much, much lower threshold. And well, so and those two things together, I mean, I think many schools and the people who, uh, administrators who work at those schools would like the definition to be much more inclusive of much, much more behavior that unfortunately, many or even most people, depending on the policy, would not actually consider to be sexual harassment. Well, and what we saw, you know, going beyond that 2001 definition, what we saw, uh, you know, after 2011, which is when the Office for Civil Rights under the Obama administration really began to take a very active and aggressive role in, um, you know, uh, the way schools handle sexual misconduct claims on campus, in some resolution agreements with uh, colleges and universities, they used an even more expansive definition, which was, quote, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. This is a blueprint definition. Yes. Yeah, including, specifically, including verbal conduct. So although they walked that back sort of privately in a letter to fire, the damage was done, and a lot of universities actually adopted and continue to this day to maintain that definition as the operative definition of sexual harassment in their policies. Mm-hmm. And that, it's just, just for a second, what that means for folks is that if somebody else doesn't like something you say and it's arguably related to sex. Or gender. Or gender, mm -hmm. that's it. That's it. So you don't like gay marriage, you don't like women in the military, you disagree. Or, or, or you do, you like, do like Or you do like, and right, somebody right. complains about it, guess what? You've got an investigation because you engaged in unwelcome verbal conduct of a sexual nature, which just means about sex or gender or whatever. So Title Nine. 1976, right? Uh, 1972. But it's a 26-word statute, right? Quick editor's note here. Title IX is actually a 37-word statute, not a 26-word statute. I don't know where I got 26 from. Well, the, the operative part is. The rest of it is mostly, uh, is mostly exceptions. Right, I mean, it's, it's interesting. A, a lot of, one of the first things a lot of people ask when they read the statute is, well, how, why does this require colleges and universities to address sexual harassment and sexual assault? And the answer to that is that through a series of court decisions and administrative regulations, uh, the definition of discrimination has been expanded to include uh, harassment that creates an environment so hostile that it has the effect, essentially, of amounting to discrimination, right? So, for example, you know, in the earliest cases, it dealt with quid pro quo harassment. So if you are a female student at a university and you have a professor who is demanding sex in exchange for good grades, you know, yes, that may not be the university itself discriminating against you, but if the university doesn't address it in some way, uh, you know, if you go to the university and they don't address it or, in some way. Or have way, a policy prohibiting it. Or have a policy right. prohibiting it, then you're effectively being discriminated against. I mean, if you can't get the grades you need to succeed because you're refusing to have sex with a professor and the university ignores your complaints about it. We got a problem. That yeah. has the effect of discrimination. And that has been expanded beyond quid pro quo to include student-on-student -student harassment. So if severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive student-on-student -student harassment is occurring on campus, the university is aware of it and, and acts in a way that's deliberately indifferent to it, that can be said to, to be the equivalent of discriminating, the university discriminating against you on the basis of sex. So that's how we got from, you know, the 26-word the sexual uh, discrimination statute to 
all of these processes that universities have to adjudicate sexual harassment and sexual misconduct claims. Right, and that does, I mean, if you draw the standard the right way, as you said earlier, Nico, right, you can have discriminatory harassment and schools should respond to discriminatory harassment properly defined, right? And you, you can have a standard that is carefully crafted to protect the First Amendment, dialogue, uh, discussion, uh, academic freedom interests that we hold dear, uh, along with the uh, good and necessary public policy of uh, allowing students to uh, re receive an education without uh, suffering from discriminatory harassment. You just got to draw the definition the right way. And it's got to be a necessarily uh, clear uh, and exacting bar. And that's what the court put forth in 1999 uh, when they issued the Davis decision, which actually concerned uh, a really ugly uh, sexual misconduct uh, at the grade school level. Mm -hmm. but is applicable to institutions, including institutions of higher education covered by uh, Title IX. And in the Davis decision, uh, as both uh, Robert and Sam have written about eloquently, uh, you see this really fascinating uh, back and forth between Justice O'Connor writing for the five uh, justices in the majority uh, and Justice Kennedy in dissent, uh, where Kennedy is worried that the Davis definition is too low. It'll restrict yep. speech, that it is, in, a, in effect, uh, a speech code. Uh, it's a de facto speech code and will uh, allow uh, simple disagreements to uh, constitute claims of discriminatory harassment. And he predicted a flood of litigation on both sides, uh, and he was correct about that. He I was mean, right sometimes about it. He was correct, that. except that they weren't, they weren't actually using the Davis definition. Right. Now, he thought that would be too low, but it turned out that that was, you know, people didn't even adopt that. They didn't even end right. up with the safeguard that the the five justice majority, which was the, the four more on the left plus Sandra Day O'Connor, um, that they were saying, no, this isn't going to be a problem. But even there, the assumption was that there would be an application of this standard. Right. You and, know. And, the, and so, yes, Robert said earlier, you get OCR, which declines right away to adopt the exact language. They thought their language functionally consistent with Davis. Uh, and then 20 years later, here we are. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, back to the, to circle back, be interesting if the new regs uh, include uh, Davis uh, word for word and as Fires argued uh, that they should. Yeah, yeah so, I mean the defenders of the status quo, which, which more or less comes down to defending what seems to have been, um, and I, I know I'm speaking broadly, but what seems to have been that, that blueprint definition of any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, including verbal conduct, I, I think the people ought to understand that what they're defending is, is a prescription for abuses which don't even pass the laugh test and which make sexual harassment codes into itself a joke. The best example of this ever is the case we had at the University of Oregon yes. where a student, a female student during exams uh, saw a couple engaging in some kind of public display of affection out her window and yelled, I hit it first. Um, at the couple, implying that she had had sex with the guy in the couple first. The couple didn't think it was funny, and they you know, stormed in and found out who it was. And she was hit with five conduct charges for that four-word joke, one of which was sexual harassment. But that, what, what I hit it first, was unwelcome, any unwelcome conduct. Including verbal in conduct. Of a sexual nature. It was. There's no denying it. That's the status quo right now at a huge number of schools in the status the quo that the opponents of the new regulations are trying to defend. It's indefensible. The law professor how about the at law Howard? professor at Howard who had a hypothetical, you know, oh. for those of you who have not gone to law school, exams involve these wacky hypotheticals that, 
you know, where you're supposed to basically apply the knowledge you've gained to, to really sort of unusual scenarios. And they're, they're notorious for being, you know, convoluted sort of create, have these and weird. convoluted yeah. factual patterns. And so, uh, you know, this professor designed a hypothetical that involved, a, you know, a, somebody who fell asleep while receiving a Brazilian wax and, and believed when she awoke that she'd been inappropriately touched and what were the potential legal issues there. And the professor was subjected to some ridiculous length, you know, 500 and something yeah, days. days invest, sexual harassment investigation because students objected to the fact that he, you know, mentioned a Brazilian wax in his hypothetical. We yeah. got a million of them. There's the student newspaper at the University of Alaska Fairbanks that was investigated for almost a year for their April Fool's issue where they had an article about Boy, there are an awful lot of phallic-shaped buildings going up around campus. How about some yonic-shaped buildings, right? Right, uh -huh. and they had they, they reprinted that uh, picture still, from what is it, yeah, Patch, Patch Adams? Patch Adams yeah. from a PG-13 movie, but that subjected to an 11. Don't get me started. We we could do a whole hour. That's the on status that quo. That's if, status. if this isn't changed in these regulations, that is going to continue to be the status quo on campuses. Yeah. And it's in you know I, it's interesting because I talk so often once people find out what I do to people who have kids in school. Um, or, or adult students in college, and they can't believe it. And at the same time, a lot of times, you know, they are hearing from their students, oh, I don't feel like it's safe to say anything around here. And I have to be like, I got news, it's probably not. <laughs> you know, I mean, you should probably watch yourself because this is how low the bar is. Yeah, and it leads uh, to problems with selective enforcement. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you Because you, you obviously aren't enforcing it on everybody. If you read a poem it. in your English class that, you know, offends one student, uh, he or she has grounds for a claim, right? You read Allen Ginsberg's Howl, then you're off to the races if somebody in the class doesn't like it. Likewise, you know, on the campus, if you listen to music out loud, pop music, and the lyrics in there that somebody doesn't like, et cetera, et cetera. The applications are limitless, and they're all bad. We hope for some clarity from the Department of Education. Maybe even when we end this podcast, we go back and check our email. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know. It really comes anyway. down to show, it's a show me the man and I'll find you the crime situation. Laurenti Barry. Show me the man the or head woman, of the KGB right? said that. Exactly. We've seen, yeah, yeah, that's right. We've seen professors and mm -hmm. students and all kinds of folks brought up on lousy sexual harassment charges and it drives me nuts and and well, I, I won't even get into it but professor Teresa Buchanan that's another bad example I'm just getting yeah I mean the, the list the list again. goes on and on and I, is this is it true that this is the first time that the Department of Education has actually gone through formal rulemaking on title nine since it was first drafted yeah. No. No, it's not? No. No, the, but it's the in a while. Stuff, in a the the previous stuff we're talking about, 2011, 2001, that was guidance. guidance 2001 yeah. was guidance, but it was... It did go through notice and comment. Weirdly put through notice. Yeah. And, and actually, it was... It, it came out on the very last day of the Bill Clinton administration. And, so and, but rulemaking, it's the first it was, time in a long time. I don't yeah. know the year I, I, there was an There was an op-ed today in, in Inside Higher Ed that I think... If I'm reading yeah. correctly, suggested that this was the first time it's. Going ah, to be I got to go look it up now. If I'm yeah. wrong, folks, you can send your emails to willatthefire.org. But take it definitely is something that's unusual. Um, and it's a long process. This is a multi-year process. process. And they received over a hundred thousand. Uh, hundred thirty thousand. Yeah. And you know what? See. Unlike the two thousand one letter, people actually know what's going to. You know, we mm -hmm. gave notice. We got a chance to speak. That was something that Fire has been pushing for ever since the twenty eleven letter. And fired and so, a lawsuit to try. Kudos to the department for actually going through what the law requires yep. this time. So yep. public should be allowed to comment. That's so cool. to put a bow on this, I mean, we talked about Title VI before. We talked about Title IX. In both cases, they pro prohibit discrimination of some sort. Title VI, race, color, national origin. Title IX, on the basis of sex. Mm -hmm. And through various mechanisms over the years, harassment has been determined to be a form of discrimination right. if the university doesn't properly address it. 
Right now, there's just larger debates about happening about what actually constitutes harassment. Peer-on-peer -peer harassment, hostile environment harassment. The courts have given us some clarity, as, for example, in Davis, um, but it's trying to get the agencies that actually enforce these in the schools to adopt those definitions and adopt definitions that don't prohibit protected speech. And that's, that's right. something FIRE's been working on for many years, uh, while also still recognizing that there are problems on campus that need to be discrimination needs to be addressed, just need to be done so without violating the First Amendment. So we'll stay tuned for that. Of course, check our website. We'll check our emails after this. See yeah. If, see if something came down the pike. Um, I'm going to leave it there because i got to head to a train now. Anything we missed? Anything? Any last words? Well, you know, it's January. we got a long year ahead of us. we got an election year, Nico. And Who everybody's going to be yeah, super relaxed. Yeah, yeah, super relaxed. Already. Right. Who knows what any... surprises? Every morning, the first thing I do with one eye open is I hold my phone <laughs> about five inches from my face. I read the Inside Higher Ed update. That's a plug for IHE. And Great and I, I look at Twitter. And if nothing requires immediate attention, I consider that day off to a great start. <laughs> yes. You never know. We have our 9.15 a.m. meeting every day, and we get all kinds of interest in case submissions. So stay tuned. The year is young. Yeah, and also stay, stay tuned for our 10 Worst Colleges for Free Speech list. That comes oh, out typically um, on, on, uh, in February. We got a bunch of stinkers in, in that yeah. list. That is a bad I'm actually list. looking at the list right now. I guess that schools have a couple of weeks to do the no right spoilers. thing and get off the list. But. <laughs> no spoilers, but hey, you know who you are, bad schools. You, yeah. We've been warned. This is not, not a surprise to any of you. Many to ad nauseum in many cases. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, this podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak at twitter.com slash free speech talk, facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take feedback, so to speak, at thefire.org. Only good feedback. No Only good feedback. <laughs> if you have good feedback, also consider leaving in a re review Fashion at Apple Podcasts, tips. Google Play. <laughs> We're on YouTube. That's a that's a good hat tip to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thefire.org. <laughs> Ham Radio. Can Ham Radio. Ham Radio. Yeah, Robert would talking about that earlier. Sorry, I'm derailing your, uh, your out outro Yeah, here. I've got this whole script written I for my know, outro. I am sorry. It's, well, I'm you're messing your it boss, all so I can do it. All right. Yes, yeah, so you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. But until next time, uh, I want to thank everyone again for listening or watching. Cheers. Thank you.